Genesis chapter 7. And then after that, Genesis chapter 8. Then after that, Genesis chapter 9. And then communion. Let's stop and pray for a moment. Uh, Father, I, again, I'm always thanking you for worship, and we're going to see it tonight, that it's an automatic response to your goodness and to your salvation in every way. And I thank you for your word and for the, the history of the world that you've given us that we call the Bible. And uh, it's just amazing, Father, as we read through these chapters in Genesis, from the creation to uh, right up till the to the flood that we're going to study tonight and then even past that. And so we thank you for all of that, Father. Help me to be able to teach your word accurately and help all of us to receive a message from you within our hearts tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Genesis chapter 7, we're going to go through it. I'm going to go through fairly quickly. I'm cognizant of communion tonight, and so we will be on time. Uh, but... I wanted to put these chapters together. I'm going to end in verse 17 of chapter 9, and you'll understand that clearly. And you'll also see it's called From the Rainbow to the Cross, and you'll understand fully by the time we get to the end of this why I have called it that. So uh, verse 1, Genesis 7, reads this way. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I, God, have found you righteous in this generation. Now, he's talking directly to Noah, and Noah is righteous by faith. And we're righteous by faith also, but righteous by faith in Jesus and the cross. Uh, that righteousness is imputed to us. Uh, Noah received his righteousness from God in the sort of the same way, uh, but he was righteous in his obedience to God by faith. Then verse 2 says, uh, Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. And then it says, verse 4, Seven days from now, Noah, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, so over a month, and I'll wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Now, I want to stop there just for a moment, because as we read through this, uh, there's a question that comes up. I just want to answer it plainly at the beginning. Was the flood universal? The answer is yes. And if you didn't know anything about the flood, never heard about it, and you were given this as a story and you could read it accurately especially if you could read it in Hebrew, but it's fine in English, uh, and, and you read the story, and then you were asked a question, tell me what the story was about. One of the things that you would definitely say is that, well, according to that story, uh, God sent enough water to cover the whole earth, every, every bit of the earth. It was a universal flood. It wasn't just the way that Noah was looking out, guessing what it was. That's exactly what it was. And also, uh, you'll notice as we move along here that there's tremendous amount of detail. I'm not going to go into all of the detail, uh, but the Bible is a book of detail. And we can trust the Bible because of all of the little details. 
But our purpose tonight is to see what this whole story of the flood here and the end of the flood can teach us tonight. In verse 5, it says, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do. That was Noah's characteristic of life. He was a faithful man. So Noah's dad, Lamech, died five years previously. His grandfather, Methuselah, the oldest man to ever live, had just died. And all the preparation was completed. And Noah's family followed Noah's faith and were ready to enter the ark. And we even know how old he was. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. Now in Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, I put it on the screen. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That means that his sons were 100 years old when the flood started. So uh, what would have happened is they were born as newborn babies, the three of them, over a period of three or four years, and then they would have grown up and, uh, and matured and be young teenagers, then they would have gotten married, and they would have been helping their father build the ark for somewhere around 70 or 75 or so years, and they would have been told, and not only would they heard their father preach to the culture, but they would have been told by their father very definitely uh, what was to happen and why they were building the ark. So now look at verse 7. And Noah and his sons, now I like to count here, so Noah, that's one, and his sons, two, three, four, and his wife, that's five, and his son's wife, one, two, three, four, entered the ark. So eight people uh, entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Verse 7 says, Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah. People that object to everything like to say, well, how did Noah get all this in the ark? Well, God did all of this. He created the whole world in uh, six days and rested on the seventh day. It was no problem for him to have his creation come to Noah, and Noah would have and the others would have directed all these animals into the ark. And we talked about uh, the ark and the size of it and all of that last week. Verse 10, And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, very precise here, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. Better word uh, in English? Uh, they erupted like a volcano of water erupted and the floodgates of the heavens were opened or the way the New Living Translation puts it is this and the rains fell in mighty torrents from the sky. <clears throat> so this is a sudden event that all of a sudden happened but they knew about it. Everybody knew it was going to happen or at least they were told it was going to happen. Uh, they didn't believe it. Now, notice how precise the text is. I've mentioned that at the beginning. Very, very precise. And this story, this Bible history is presented in such a way as to make it clear these are no mere myths. These are historical events that happen at a precise time in history. Our Bibles are verifiably accurate and have been proven true over and over again. Now, look at verse 12. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, so over a month. Now, a flood of this magnitude 
will completely change the typography of the earth as the continents shifted, the tectonic plates shifted, and the waters of the ocean surged, and the rains pounded. So it would have changed everything on the earth. So here we have a recreation account along with Noah, who we could call, in a sense, the new Adam. Now look at verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his son Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and everything with wings. Verse 15, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah, and then this is very dramatic, and then the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. It's, it's, it's very dramatic. I mean, as I was going through my notes and looking at all of this, I just tried to imagine it because uh, all of a sudden, remember, the waters hadn't come yet. There's this ark, this huge ark there, and all those animals are in it, and now the door's shut. I'm sure, I'm positive there were lots of people around watching what was going on. Uh, Jesus is our door to salvation today. And in John chapter 10, verse 9, these are the words of Jesus. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, they will be saved. But that door will be shut someday too. Now look at verse 17. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals and the Creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Now, this wasn't a surprise. Noah warned the people for a very long time. He was a, called a, in the New Testament <clears throat> a preacher of righteousness. We did this last week, but it's worth reviewing. What did Jesus think about this? Well, here's what Jesus thought. Matthew 24, 37, this is called the Olivet Discourse. It's about the end times that we live in now. And he says, it was as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said to his disciples at that time. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man was Jesus' self-designation out of the book of Daniel, and it, he was really saying he was deity every time he said that. So you could read it this way, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when I come again. Now, when this was first said, they didn't know what he was talking about, but they would before long because the cross would tell them and they would find out about the second coming of Christ. So he goes on to say, 
For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be, Jesus is saying, when I come again, when the Son of Man comes again. Things will be going on as they normally are going on. Luke's gospel puts it even a little clearer than that one. Jesus made it absolutely clear that we would not know the date of his return. This was so we will live for eternal things rather than ourselves. We were created to live by hope. People who don't have hope, well, they commit suicide or simply obliterate their thinking of alcohol or drugs or live in total denial of reality. Ray Stebman, in his sermon on this passage, wrote, The great question of Scripture is, if life is that uncertain, why not live now? Not in the empty death of the world's delirium. That's a great partial sentence that fits today. Not in the empty death of the world's delirium, but in the full swing of the Spirit's power. We should be so different than the people in the world. Knowing that all that is truly vital is kept safe in the ark of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 24. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So that's uh, well over half a year, and it includes the 40 days. Dr. Alan Ross, tremendous scholar, especially on this, uh, on Genesis, writes, the story of the flood <clears throat> should make people aware of the wrath of God. God's wrath is his righteous anger. Such a judgment for sin shows that God's gracious provision of redemption is meaningful and that his grace is not to be taken lightly. Can human beings get away with living in moral abandon and enjoying the pleasures of their evil inclinations forever? Is there a God who has something to say about the way people live? Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 answers these questions. So here we see God as Savior. The ark representing the salvation for which we have received from Jesus. We're here tonight to, to celebrate that in our communion service right at the end of this. What is happening here is that we're seeing God save Noah out of the pre-flood world of unmitigated evil, entering the post-flood era. So Abram, who became Abraham, could be born. Moses could be born. Israel could be formed. So Jesus could be born as the Savior who died for you and me so God could have a worshiping remnant with him forever. Now, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God never forgets anything or anybody. Last week, we ended with chapter 6, verse 22 on the screen, and it reads, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That was Noah's habit of life. So now God acts on his promise to Noah and God remembered Noah, God remembered Abraham, God remembered Israel, and God remembers you and me. But 
Go back to verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens have been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest. That's the important word here, on the mountains of Ararat. That's in Turkey. So the mark came, the, the ark came to rest. Now, we've talked about the word rest and the idea of rest uh, back when we did the creation account in chapter 1, the seventh day of rest. In six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day, he rested. And we talked about what that really means. Noah's name sounds like the word for comfort. It sounds like that word. But it also is very close to the word for rest. So in the Hebrew language, the word for rest and comfort are almost exactly the same. And so I put this little thing on the... Uh, you can look at it here. It's the pronunciation key. Not that my pronunciation is going to be great, but uh, the word Noah is pronounced Noach. The word rest is pronounced Nuach. The word comfort is pronounced Nachem. And so you have these three words that are very similar in sound. And sound was very important in the Hebrew language. Uh, it is common in the Hebrew Scriptures for the writers to use words that sound like other words to make important points. So remember Noah's dad, Genesis chapter 5? When Lamech, that's his dad, had lived 182 years, he had a son and he named him Noah and said he will lachem us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. But for that to happen... God would first have to start over. So here we are. Noah is bringing this Noah, this rest, and the ark has rested. So in verse 5, the waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days... Noah opened the window that he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and he kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Now, the raven could not find any rest, so it had to continue to return to the ark that was at rest. Our lives are to be lives of rest. We are to be a people who know that God's in charge, and therefore, even if the waters try to cover us, if the uh, wars happen and all of these things, we are at rest as far as God is concerned. We trust him, trust him. And then verse 8, then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find nowhere to, it says perch in English, but you could say rest. 
And because there was, there was water over all the surface of the earth still, so it returned to Noah in the ark, and he reached out his hand, and he took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark that was at rest. So the dove could not find any place to rest, and it came back to the ark to rest. Now, verse 10. Noah waited seven more days, the patience of this man, and again sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth, and he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return from him. The dove had found rest on the cleansed earth. We could say the world was now at rest. Now, often the dove is compared to the Holy Spirit, and correctly, I I think, but with the wrong intent at first. The dove is seen here as a symbol of peace. That That is not the intent here. Not yet. Not yet. The dove here is a symbol, actually, of the new creation. You know that we're living today on the earth, and we're going to live forever on the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, those of us who uh, go before uh, the second coming of Jesus up in the rapture and all of that, uh, we're going to come back, have new bodies, and we're going to be on earth, and we're going to really enjoy being on the earth because it will be cleansed (laughs) like it was here, like the original creation, and it will have everything. It's just going to be wonderful. And we're going to spend a thousand years on that new earth, and then God has some plans that we couldn't even imagine. And so the dove points the way to this new earth and the new promise or the new covenant that God has offered to Noah and his relatives and even to the animals on the ark. And when the dove comes on to Jesus during his baptism by John the Baptist, it is representing the Holy Spirit and the new covenant promise of God to renew our lives when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, I don't object to the idea of the dove and peace because we find peace with God when we become Christians, and then we can have the peace of God that Paul talks of in Philippians, which is caused by the Holy Spirit in our lives. So now look at at verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Now, Noah is very patient waiting for God, not running ahead of God. And God did remember Noah and spoke to Noah. Now, look at verse 15. Then God said to Noah, so God's speaking to him now, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, and bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number. 
on the earth. God wants his creation, that's us, by the way, besides the earth, to be continually growing, continually fruitful. It is God's will not only that we multiply by having children and teaching them about God, but it's also God's will that we continually grow spiritually, continually learn more and more about life while telling others about Jesus. So Noah, verse 18 reads, came out. Now, I I spent, I, I just took some time aside today to think about this, to try to just imagine it. Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wife, all eight of them. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, hundreds of them, and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. I mean, this had to be the most amazing experience. I mean, I'm trying to, as far as I know, none of them were musicians because I'm thinking of the music that could be playing, but probably not the case. But there was lots of music when the birds sung and uh, the animals making the sounds that they're making because they'd be delighted to be off that ark. They've been there for a long time and to be able to stretch their legs and be able to flap their wings and fly. And it would have been all over the places, Adam and I'm sorry, Noah and his wife and Shemham and Japheth and their wives were just watching all this and looking around them in absolute amazement and wonder. And then verse 20 said, as a result of that, that's the way I like to read it for myself, as a result of all of their seeing, Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. So this was an act of worship, acknowledging that God is the sovereign Lord of the whole earth and that without God, Noah and his family would not be alive. Here we see that worship is to be of first importance in our lives. Noah walked with God. Noah was a man of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, uh, just three words, by Faith, Noah. Imagine the wonder and excitement when Noah and his family went out forth from the ark with all these animals around them, exploring the round, running away, flying away, uh, all of the noise that that would make. Uh, There are are many things one might think of to do after being stuck in an ark with hundreds of animals and birds. But the first thing Noah thought of was worship. Worship is communicating with God, and it is often the case that in giving ourselves in worship, God speaks to us. We call our weekend services worship services. And, and, we, and, and even tonight, this is a worship service. Uh, we must come to our worship services with the expectation that God will speak to us even as he spoke to Noah. And it's not just speaking to us in the organization of the service or what particular songs are particularly sung or uh, how good the music team was or the sound and all that, but it's the whole thing. We're a family that have come together, and when we come together to worship God, 
then he'll use the family in all ways of their abilities, music abilities, their organizational abilities, and all of that. God will use that to speak to us. And we should expect that every time we come to church. There always should be something that we think about while we're here that will make us say, I'm going to change this or add this or do this or stop doing this because of my worship. Now, verse 21, and I like this. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. He smelled the pleasing aroma. Here's what I think of. I think of Thanksgiving. Uh, People have lots of barbecues. And in my little neighborhood, you can uh, walk around the half hour, half hour, half a mile circle, and uh, you can smell the barbecue. And I particularly like barbecue. And so right away, you smell it, and oh, they invite me over. You know, I mean, it's just a pleasing aroma. And, And that's sort of the picture. I think all of us can see that. The Lord smelled, you can see this is a metaphor, the pleasing aroma of the worship and said in his heart, of the sacrifice and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God doesn't have a nose and he doesn't have a heart because God is spirit, but he expresses himself uh, through the writings of Moses so we can understand how he feels about us. It's called an anthropomorphism. It's just a, a human way of explaining this is what God is. He feels like good the way you feel good when you smell the aroma of a nice meal that's being cooked. In this case, the smell of the barbecue was a great smell to God, and he accepted Noah's thanks. This is a picture of how God feels about us when we come together and worship him corporately. He loves the smell of worship. Now, God smells our worship because of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, New Living Translation. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. We're his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Jesus, of Christ, of the Messiah. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. That's why we're here tonight, to remember that. And look what it says next, a pleasing aroma to God. So in verse 21 still, God says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. So notice here, first of all, that we're all sinners. That's the reason for all that is happening in the world today. This sentence is a picture of the theological term total depravity. Have you heard that before? Sometimes somebody will ask me how I am, and it matters. I try not to say this to somebody that's just visiting. But uh, they'll say, how are you doing? I'll say, I'm fine, except I'm totally depraved. But I'm not as bad as I could be. (laughs) That's the whole idea. It means that every aspect of our lives have been tainted by sin, but we're not as bad as we could be. And nevertheless, we are bad enough that we can't be in heaven with a holy God. 
Noah's sacrifice was accepted by God, but only because Jesus was on his mind. And in Romans chapter 3, we read this. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God, justified, when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just and makes sinners right in his sight. In other words, he imputes righteousness, gives righteousness to us, sees us as righteousness in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Now, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Enoch believed God, and God took him. Noah believed God, and God raised him up out of, the, out of his wrath. And the same today, except that the object of our faith is Jesus. Now, look at verse 22. As long as the earth endures, God is making this statement, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. The earth will survive regardless of storms, regardless of earthquakes, regardless of tornadoes and cold spells or even global warming. And so will we. Alan Ross again says, Noah received God's grace, walked with him in obedience and righteousness, became a preacher of righteousness, was preserved through the judgment, entered a new age with the gross wickedness of that generation removed, and afterward offered his gratitude to God with pleasing worship. Now, chapter 9, just a few verses. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sounds just like the creation account. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants for your food. Now I give you everything. So Noah becomes the new Adam. And God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Now Noah is being given the same command. And God told Adam he would have dominion over the animals. Now Noah is given a position above the animals. And God supplied food for Adam. And now God supplies food for Noah. And yes, it includes steak. But not rare steak. No, no. It says in verse 4, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. So it better be really well cooked. Now, the reason for not eating blood becomes clear as we travel through the Hebrew Scriptures and arrive at the death of Jesus. We're going to talk about the blood of Jesus tonight. Blood becomes a symbol of life-giving death. I read it wrong. Anyhow, that blood brings us to life. We were dead. The blood of Jesus is the death of Jesus on the cross, which provides for our salvation. So blood is not to be eaten, but is to become a symbol of sacrifice and freedom. 
And it's because of the blood sacrifices of the animals that God overlooked the sins of his people. And it's because of the blood of Jesus, his death on the cross, that God accepts us into heaven for eternity. Now, here's a, a verse that some of you know is a problem. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses won't allow blood transfusions because of that verse. But uh, the blood transfusion is not the same as eating or drinking blood. The blood transfusion saves lives and is a great symbol of how the life of God is poured into us when Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. And then in verse 5, it reads, chapter 9, verse 5, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. Now, this is an important section here. I'll demand an accounting from every animal. If an animal kills a person, there's going to be an accounting. And from each human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. It would be better read... I will demand an accounting for the life of your brother. That's a better way to read it. This makes us think about Cain and Abel, the first murder in the Bible. Cain killed Abel. Verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now this statement, first of all, makes it clear or makes clear the importance of human life. We are made in the image of God. If a man or woman murders another, then that man or woman must give up life too. This is the beginning of the law. Moses come down in the first commandment, thou shalt not kill, not, thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say kill, it actually says murder. Thou shalt not murder. This demonstrates the reality that because of our sinfulness, there will still be violence on the earth. And without law, without laws, no society can survive. It would be anarchy. And without protection of life and property, there can be no freedom. The covenant that God makes with Moses will include detailed laws about property and, importantly, about capital punishment and the different punishments regarding motive. Accidental deaths would not be punished by taking the life of the person who accidentally killed another. Self-defense is taken into consideration. So here's a question. What should we believe about capital punishment today? Should we put people to death when they murder someone? Now, I would say that the Bible surely is on the side of capital punishment, but also government must be involved. And there must be process in the administration of such law. Biblically, to put someone to death, there had to be at least two witnesses, and the case had to be what we call closed and shut. No doubt at all. Some are against capital punishment because of their fear of an innocent person being convicted and killed. And this is an important point. But from a Christian perspective... When we die, whether by a heart attack or lethal ejection, 
we are passing immediately into the hands of God who judges justly and disperses rewards or punishment without error. So clearly it is not as straightforward as some would like it to be. But we must see how precious we are in God's sight and how important it is to respect the image of God in others. Well, God then further speaks to Noah about family. Verse 7. As for you, Noah, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So God is giving Noah and his family, his wife, future hope, purpose. Children will laugh and play. Businesses will be developed. Communities will be formed. Worship will be enjoyed. Fruitfulness will be experienced. And in verse 8, 9, 10, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with ever." Every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Now, a covenant is an agreement or a treaty between parties. This particular covenant is called the Noahic covenant. It's one-sided, all of God. No conditions, a covenant of pure grace. God is saying, this is how I am going to treat you. You can depend on it because I never change. Malachi, I think it was one six. When God makes a covenant, it's automatically binding because God cannot lie. Covenants have a sign, and in this case, one of the most recognizable signs ever. The purpose of the sign is to reassure us that God will keep his promise. So still in verse 11, it reads, Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. And never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And then the last verse, 17. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Now our covenant sign today is the cross. The sign of the cross made it clear to the whole world that God was for humanity. When God, when Noah saw the rainbow, he would remember God's promise. And when God sees the rainbow, uh, God would also remember. Noah waited in the ark until God said to move on. Noah trusted in God's timing. Noah worshipped. Noah lived by faith. 
The rainbow, the cross, is our assurance of our future salvation. Because of the rainbow and our remembrance of the cross, we can be confident in God's love for humanity. God didn't forget Noah, and he won't forget us. You'll remember the verse, Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. So we've gathered tonight to have communion service, to remember, to not forget to remember the cost of the free salvation that gives us assurance of heaven. And that's why we have communion, to remember what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, he, he, and we'll read it in a moment in the Bible as we take communion. Uh, he mentioned the new covenants very specifically so that every time we drink the cup uh, or, uh, or eat the uh, wafers that we have, the bread, every time we do that, remember the, we remember the blood of Jesus, which means remember his death, and we remember his body on that cross, that he died for us. And that blood that was shed on that cross makes us righteous in God's sight forever. And so we are assured of an incredible future which should cause us to live life differently than others in many, many ways. And then we have a message of hope to give to everyone in the world. And so uh, most of you know, I'm sure all of you here tonight know how we do communion. Um, you're, if you're a Christian, you're invited to take communion with us. Uh, we have different stations, a couple of them here. And in the back, we have uh, one also. And so in a moment, I'll pray and uh, we can all go and get our elements and come back together. And then we'll have uh, some communion and I'll lead that and then we'll have worship. So, Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the rainbow, because that promise is still for us, too, that you're not going to ever flood the earth completely again. That's not going to happen. And I just thank you for all that we have to look forward to, not only heaven, but then the new heavens and the new earth. And it's going to be the most wonderful experience, even greater than what Noah and his family experienced when they first came out of that ark. And so thank you, Jesus, for staying on the cross and not coming down. You could have. And thank you for loving us enough to sacrifice your life, your perfect life for our imperfect lives. In Jesus' name, amen.